name. Please remain standing. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. I'll be reading the uh, first three verses there as we look at a message I've entitled The First Deacons. The First Deacons. And the reason I'm talking about deacons is we are ordaining a new deacon to our church. That'll be in late service. You're certainly welcome to come back for that. Uh, But we are ordaining a new deacon, and he's preaching. (laughs) And so uh, because of that, I wanted to keep the theme going here in early service, Acts 6, verses 1, 2, and 3. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Thank you. May be seated. Looking at deacons this morning. And so uh, there was a deacon who was sick in the hospital, so the pastor went to see him. The deacon was on oxygen, so he was unable to talk. As the pastor stood at his bedside, the deacon motioned for a piece of paper and a pen. The deacon wrote a message, handed to the pastor, then died. Well, the pastor put his note in the jacket pocket and uh, kind of forgot about it and called the nurse. At the deacon's funeral the next week, the pastor was telling how wonderful the deacon was and remembered the note. And so the pastor pulled the note out. He said, I happen to have the deacon's last words with me. The pastor unfolded the note and read, Please move, you're standing on my oxygen tube. All right, so anyway, let's look at the first deacons. First of all, the complaint. The complaint, the Grecian and Hebrew believers began to bicker, according to verse 1. They were bickering with each other. Notice it says, there arose a murmur, a murmur there. And why? Because the Grecian widows were being overlooked. Now, the Grecians were probably Greek-speaking Jewish believers. And certainly this was an honest oversight. There was no malice intended. As the apostles, as busy as they were, and they were helping distribute uh, people's daily needs, food, and so on, uh, they just happened to be overlooking these Grecian widows. And you see, the reason that happened was because the daily distribution became increasingly difficult as the number of believers grew. And so on Pentecost, we have the church growing by 3,000. And it's growing, as you read through Acts, day by day by day. And so it just becomes this overwhelming task. And you've got the apostles who are trying to do everything uh, they've been called to do, plus serve these widows. And it just became more than they could handle. Now, widows in biblical times were considered to be among society's most helpless And so these were the most helpless in that society, and they were being overlooked. Again, it was an honest oversight. The apostles had no malice towards these Grecian widows. But something we can learn about that is that complainers in the church are nothing new. I mean, the church is only really days old here, and already we have complainers. Now, sometimes complaints are legitimate, like this one. This was a legitimate complaint. But other times, people just like the attention their complaining brings. And so if they raise enough stink, then that gets them attention. I don't know, some of you might already be ready to uh, complain about this black curtain behind me. Uh, I knew it was going up, but I didn't know when. 
And uh, it wasn't until I was here this morning, I was telling Sherry, I went and turned the light on, I'm coming up the aisle, and I said, what is, something's strange, something's different, what is, and then I realized, the curtain is only there for Bible school, uh, because they're going to hang all kinds of, you know, fancy, fun stuff on it. So, this is not permanent, it's just, uh, it's just for decorations, which would have been up, but Donna's not been feeling well, so the, the decorations would have already been up, and you probably wouldn't have known the cur- noticed the curtain because of all the decorations. Anyway, sometimes complainers in church uh, have a legitimate reason, and by all means, if you're being overlooked, uh, you should complain. Other times, folks just like to hear themselves complain. So we have the complaint, but secondly, I want us to look at the concerned 12. The concerned 12, the, the apostles are very concerned about this complaint. And they realize they've been overlooking by accident, but they've been overlooking. So here's their suggestion in verse 4. We will continue to pray, preach, and teach. That's what we're going to do. And by the way, benevolent ministry is not inferior to preaching and teaching. It's just helping others. It was not beneath the apostles here, but they had to fulfill their calling, which was not social ministry. Their calling was preaching and teaching, and that was being hindered by this daily ministration. And so they said, tell you what, we're going to keep preaching and teaching and praying. You, church, you choose out seven men to handle the daily distribution. And notice from verse 3, there were qualifications of these men. First of all, they had to have a good reputation. Secondly, they had to be full of the Holy Spirit. Now, not just saved. They needed to be saved, of course, but not just saved. They needed to be demonstrating the evidence of the Spirit living within them. The Bible tells us in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit or the evidence of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. And so, yes, you need to get men who are saved, but make sure they're full of the Spirit. They're demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Thirdly, they had to be wise. And lastly, they had to be capable of handling the daily distribution fairly. Again, look in verse 3. Look about among you seven men of honest report, good reputation, full of the Holy Ghost, wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Make sure they're capable of doing it. The church needs leaders with these abilities. Every church everywhere needs leaders with these abilities. Having a good reputation, being full of the Spirit, being wise and capable of fulfilling their ministry. And all Christians should cultivate these characteristics in our lives. I know we're talking about deacons here. But this is something we should all strive to be. Have a good reputation. Be full of the Spirit. Be wise and capable of fulfilling our ministries. Well, notice in verse 5, the church was pleased with the suggestion. These guys said, you know what, we're going to pray, we're going to preach, we're going to teach. You choose seven people to handle this daily ministration. The church liked the idea. And they chose seven men. And I'm not going to read them to you, but in verse 5 there... uh, you might notice that they chose, all the men they chose had Greek names. And this makes sense since the Grecians were being overlooked. Having people with the same background would ensure that they didn't get overlooked anymore. The church here chose its first deacons. This is where the church chose its first deacons. Now, the word deacon in Greek is diakon. We just bring it over from the Greek into the English, and it means servant. And notice that the first deacons were chosen to serve tables. 
Again, verse 2, it says, The twelve called the multitude unto them and said, It's not right that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. This is what the first deacons were chosen to do. Serve tables. Pass out food. And we learn from that that deacons are not bosses. They're servants. Now, there are churches, not this one, but there are churches where deacons are bosses. They tell the preacher what to do. They tell the congregation what to do. This is not what a deacon is to do. A deacon is to be a servant. They lead by serving. They lead by godly example at home and at church. And I want you to know that at First Baptist Church, under Christ, the congregation is always in charge. Our deacons aren't going to tell you what to do. And I'm not going to tell you what to do. Christ will tell you what to do. And when it comes to the business of the church, that's your responsibility. So our procedure for choosing deacons here at First Baptist, our active deacons examine prospects. And so uh, when you tell us of somebody you think would be a good deacon or uh, we, you know, as we're looking out across the congregation and we see somebody we think would be a good deacon, then the active deacons examine them. And then the church, here's where you come in, the church as a whole votes to approve or disapprove of that choice. Now, again, I told you we're ordaining Andy in the late service. He's already been examined by the deacons. He was presented to the church at a business meeting. And I don't know if you were here or not, but the church voted to approve him. So, again, the congregation has the final say. But let me ask this. What do deacons do now that there's no daily distribution? I mean, we don't have widows coming here every day and we're passing out food to them. What do our deacons do? Well, they are still servants, serving the church members. Like we see in verse 3 here of Acts 6. Serving the pastor as we see in verse 4. Notice what it says. We will give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And you guys take care, take the burden off of us. And so our deacons serve the church members. They serve the pastor and they serve the community through benevolence. Now according to our constitution here at First Baptist Church, here is what our deacons do. Number one, they provide unification of membership. Our deacons are to bring us together as believers in Christ. When there, is pro- when there are problems where there is discontinuity, their job is to step in there and bring unification. Secondly, they are to provide administra- administration of the membership. Now, we do that through something called the deacon family plan. Every one of you, if you're a member of this church, you've been assigned to a deacon. And if you don't know who that is, you go right out this door and to the left and there's a There's a glass case there, and there's a picture of all our deacons, and underneath those deacons are the names of the people assigned to them. And that's your deacon. You can call me, you can call anybody, but that's your deacon. And so that's how they administer the membership. And then thirdly, they provide correction of membership. In other words, when our members begin to go astray, even if the pastor goes astray, the deacons come in, and they are to provide correction. And then fourthly, The deacons provide consultation with the pastor. Uh, I don't just go off and do stuff. Uh, We get together and we talk about it and we say, well, how will this impact the church? How will this impact the worship service and so on? And so we consult together. Now, a deacon must meet two requirements. Two requirements in order to be a deacon. First of all, he's got to be saved. (laughs) He's got to be saved. Now, it's interesting when you study about deacons, it never says they have to be saved in the Bible. So the Bible assumes it. You would only pick somebody, again, according to verse 3, good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, uh, 
it's assumed that the deacon will be a Christian. The Bible assumes it. We don't. And so that's why the first thing we ask deacons uh, when we are examining them is tell us what you believe about Jesus Christ. And they better say that I've received Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I believe He died on the cross to pay for my sins. He was buried for my sins. And the third day He rose again from the dead. And if they don't say that, next please. And so number one, they've got to be saved. And then number two, they need to be examined based on seven qualifications of godliness as given in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want to invite everybody to turn there. 1 Timothy... I'm not going to have it on the screen. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, gives us these qualifications of godliness for a deacon. And by the way, it includes a deacon's wife as well. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith and a pure conscience, and let these also first be examined, and then let them use the office of deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slander, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. And so very briefly, a deacon must be serious, according to verse 8, serious about his relationship with God, serious about his responsibilities as a deacon, serious about the example he sets for the church and the community. Secondly, according to verse 8, he must be a man of his word. He also must not be a drunkard. He must not be greedy. Verse 9 says he must be strong in the faith. He must be confident in whom he believes. He must be confident in what he believes. Verse 11 says he must have a faithful wife, a godly wife. Again, verse 12 says he's got to have one. He's a husband of one wife. That means not a polygamist. Back in that day, polygamy was rampant. Well, if you got a lot of wives, you're going to have trouble helping out at church. And so just one wife would be sufficient. Thank you. But she is given qualifications as well. According to verse 11, she needs to be serious, just like her husband. She is not to be a gossip. She is to be sober and faithful in all things. But why qualifications for a deacon's wife? I mean, it's the deacon who's serving at the church. It's the deacon whom the church is choosing. Why qualifications for her wife and for his wife? Because they are one. They are a team. And she is an example as well. Lastly, in verse 12, the deacon is to be in charge at home. You see, deacons are not just to be good guys. They're to be godly guys. Now, yeah, we want them to be good guys, of course. But it's not just, hey, you're my buddy, why don't you become a deacon? It's not that. They're not just to be good guys, they are to be godly guys. It's interesting, though, that the Bible concentrates on what the deacon is to be more than what he is to do. Again, we see here in chapter 6, the first deacons, they were serving tables. We get into 1 Timothy talking about what deacons are supposed to do. It really doesn't talk about their duties, That's because the Bible concentrates on what he is to be more than what he is to do. And here's the reason. If he's what he ought to be, he'll do what he ought to do. And though these qualifications are given specifically for deacons, every Christian should exhibit them. For you see, deacons are not not super Christians, but deacons are to be exemplary Christians. Sometimes around here we have trouble finding men to serve as deacons. 
And I just want to say the First Baptist does not lack qualified men. We just lack willing men. We have plenty of men in this church who are qualified, who could serve as deacons. So anyway, we've seen the complaint. That's what got the whole thing started. We see, uh, after the complaint, we see the concern 12. They said, let's do something about this. And then thirdly, what we're going to see is the commissioning, the commissioning of those first deacons. If you look down in verse 6, it says there, after they've chosen these men, it says, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And so the commissioning of the first deacons starts with prayer and then the laying on of hands. And what you're going to see today, if you stay for late service or if you watch it online, you're going to see just the opposite of that. You're going to see laying on of hands and then prayer. But it's the same difference. What is this laying on of hands, though? Well, it's symbolic of the blessing from the Old Testament. In fact, it's considered a basic elementary doctrine according to Hebrews chapter 6, the first two verses. Please understand that when our deacons and when I lay hands on Andy this afternoon, uh, there is no transfer of actual power. There's no transfer of the Holy Spirit. It is all symbolic. The significance of laying on hands, it's an outward sign of recognition. The individual has devoted himself to serving the church and the church is approving and authorizing him to serve. And by the way, in 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul warned Timothy, don't lay hands on people too quickly. Don't just grab somebody out of the pew and say, hey, come here, we're going to lay hands on you. It's very important. It's very important. Ordination is simple, but very meaningful both to the candidate and to the church. The word ordain means to choose or to set apart. The church sets aside those who will lead her. Deacon is a position of honor, but it's also a place of service. You know, the world seeks to be promoted and to be served. And that's what the world wants. Promote me. Serve me. Being ordained as a deacon is not a promotion. It's a demotion because deacons are called to serve. And so in our minds, we think, oh, He's a deacon. He's being promoted. No, he's a deacon. He's being demoted. He's saying, I'm here to serve you. And so we've seen the complaint. These women were being overlooked unintentionally. And then we see the concern 12. They said, we've got to do something about this. So they go to the church. They say, you choose people to help us here. And then we see the commissioning. They prayed, they laid their hands on them. So here's the challenge I want to leave with you this this morning. First of all, get saved. I told you the first requirement uh, to be a deacon is you need to be saved. And you might be here today or you might be listening online. You've never been saved. You've never received Jesus Christ into your heart to be your Savior. I'm telling you right now, get saved. You need this. Receive Jesus. Believe that He died on the cross to pay for your sins, that He was buried for your sins, and He rose again the third day. Then secondly, once you know you're saved, get serious about Christ. The world needs this. Get ser- Don't just play church. Get serious about Christ. And then men, this to you in particular, get serving as a deacon for Christ. Your church needs this. And so get saved. You need this. Get serious about Christ. The world needs this. 
get serving as a deacon for Christ. Your church needs this. But maybe you'd say, you know what, I'm not going to serve because I don't feel worthy. I, I just don't feel worthy to be a deacon. That's actually a good thing. You may be just the man we're looking for. We don't want somebody coming in and say, you know, I deserve to be a deacon. I deserve to have this position. We'd much rather see somebody come in and say, you know, I don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve to serve. And God is graciously demoting me to be a deacon. I told you that we are ordaining Andy in the late service, but Andy is actually with us here in this service. I told him, you know, Gary told me a long time ago, early service gets cheated out of everything. And so Andy's just going to come up and just share a quick, brief testimony. I've never seen Andy in a suit. Man, you look awesome. Uh, But anyway, he's just going to share about this first point that I mentioned here. You need to get saved. That's where it all begins for everybody, not just for deacons, everybody. You need to get saved. And so Andy's going to share with us just for a minute. Good morning, church, and uh, thank you for having me. You know, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here and, and, uh, and worship every Sunday, not only just up, up here leading in worship, but in everything that, uh, that I do. You know, it's involved in tons of things, maybe some behind the scenes, maybe some you don't see, but I enjoy serving the Lord. And that's, that's the foundation, as Pastor's uh, kind of saying, is, is the foundation is serving Christ at its core. So um, as far as getting saved goes, so Pastor Gary invited me to come share my testimony and kind of, if you don't know uh, how that came to be, that's kind of why I'm here um, for the early service because usually I'm, I'm sleeping, you know, it's too early for me, but <laughs> you know. So uh, at about eight years old, I was living in Alabama at the time and my dad was the youth pastor of that church down in, in uh, Wetumpka, Alabama. Um, people ask, well, where's Wetumpka? I just say, go to Montgomery and go north 15 minutes, you're there. I say we talk and nobody knows where that is unless you're from there. But I uh, was born uh, in Orlando, Florida, was raised in Wetumpka, Alabama until about 15 years old. I received Christ as my Savior at about eight years old. And uh, I remember that day uh, very specifically. So I, I don't uh, remember what the pastor preached on. Uh, pastor Batiski was the pastor there. I don't remember what he preached on. I don't remember uh, what was said. All I remember is that in my heart I knew I couldn't go to sleep that night without knowing that I was going to go to heaven. And so in my bedroom, I had a bunk bed, a double uh, red bunk bed uh, that was in my room. And I remember sleeping, or trying to go to sleep rather, on that, that lower be- bed there. And I said, you know, I can't, I can't do this. And so I called my dad in, I called my mom in, and uh, I said, I, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven and spend eternity with Christ forever. And uh, upon that time, they, they shared with me on how to get saved, Romans Road, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior right there on that, that bedside about eight years old. Fast forward a few years, um, about 11, 11 years old, um, I realized that being saved is the way to get you to heaven, but I also needed to show and profess publicly that faith. So at about 11 years old, I received, um, you know, baptism. I was baptized. And I remember that day very specifically because the water heater in the church broke and it was really cold. <laughs> so, so I remember getting into that water and my teeth, my teeth were starting to chatter a little bit. And uh, it was somebody else that was getting baptized with me. And I remember uh, when I told my dad, I nudged my dad. I was like, hey, I, I, I want to get baptized because we sat about here in this uh, first, second row where Dean and, and Gary are sitting usually. And so I nudged my dad and said, hey, I, I 
I need to get baptized. And so my grandparents just <laughs> happened to be in town at that time. They're from all the way from Washington State, Spokane, Washington. So they, they were in town just to visit. And I nudged my dad said, hey, I, I want to get baptized. And we lived in the parsonage next to the church uh, at that time. And I can vividly remember seeing my grandpa just booking it down the hallway to go get me some clothes. And I had never seen my grandpa run, so that was kind of interesting. But he's booking it down the hallway to go get me some extra clothes because I was about to go get mine soaked. So uh, getting baptized in that frigid water at about 11 years old. Fast forward a few years, about 15 or so. I realized, you know, what I had committed to at 8 and what I had publicly committed to at 11, I wasn't living at 15. And so I realized that I was living this, this double life, if you will. Realized that I was not following what God wanted, was not... Um, uh, living a life that was pleasing to him. And I was, I was going between the world's life and what they wanted and what I knew the scriptures wanted, what, by, what God himself wanted. And so at about 15, we moved. This had to be a God thing. We moved from Alabama to Springfield, Virginia, right up the road. And my dad took a pastoring church up at Kingstown, uh, First Baptist of Kingstown over there. And I had nobody. I grew up with all my friends. I grew up with everybody. And then I, all of a sudden, gone. I knew nobody. And so immediately, I felt isolated. I felt alone. I'm going to school by myself, sitting at lunch by myself, eating lunch by myself. And I was upset. I was angry. I was mad. I was mad at God. And I didn't understand why. He would rip everything away from me. But he, what he was doing is he was teaching me something, and I didn't realize it right then. So what happened was, is I locked myself in my room day after day after day. I'd go to work, and I'd come home. I'd go to work, and I'd come home. Go to school, and I'd come home. And I would lock myself in my room, and I would just teach myself how to play guitar. And now, here I am. God has blessed me so much. This church has blessed me so much. And that's my testimony. Thank you. Now, Andy be around afterwards out in the hallway if you want to congratulate him on his demotion uh, to deacon. Uh, so anyway, bring it all back home. Again, get saved. If you've never been saved, receive Christ as your Savior right here, right now. Get serious about your walk with Christ. And then if you're a man qualified, as we read those qualifications, get serving. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this exciting day in the life of our church as we ordain a new deacon. We just ask you to bless Andy and his family mightily as they bless your church. If there are those here who need to be saved, give them grace and faith to believe right now. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.